Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. And welcome to the Katie Helper Show. So excited to be here with you. We have a great show for you today. We have a total of three amazing guests. We have a return, a fan fave, and then we have two people making their Katie Helper Show debuts. We're so excited about this. And we're really excited to be here with you because there is such awful stuff happening in the world. And it's so important for us to come together and hear from really really great speakers and really great guests. And there's so much propaganda out there and Hasbara, as they say. And this is a place where you get people who break through that. Before we start, please, of course, do like the stream. That's a really easy way to support the show. Just requires the thumbs up. You just hit the thumbs up. If you're not already a subscriber, please subscribe. And to do that, you hit subscribe and then you press the bell. If you can become Patreon supporters, we, of course, really appreciate that. You can do that at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. If you just can join for $1 a month, that makes a huge difference because we literally couldn't do the show without that. If you can do a $5 a month level, then you get extra content, which is always great. So let's see. We're going to bring on, as I said before, a total of three guests. So we'll be talking later with Theory Yakub and with Noor Jaghama. But first, we're going to be bringing onto the show... Ali Abunima, he's the executive director of the Electronic Intifada, and he's the author of One Country and the Battle for Justice in Palestine. So welcome, Ali. Hello, how are you? Hi, Katie. How are you? I'm well-ish, as I guess well-ish, but it's a very hard time, obviously. How are you? Because you're someone who's on the front lines of what's happening right now. Well, I'm very fortunate to not be on the front lines, but we at the Electronic Intifada have been trying our best to uh, highlight those who are on the front lines and to give them a platform to speak to the world. And, And we've been doing that. And I think the work helps keep us from really being paralyzed by the true scale and horror of what uh, is happening now, a genocide in Gaza, a real genocide. You are in contact with people who are on the front lines. You're on the metaphorical front lines, I would say, in terms of your coverage and constantly bringing awareness and reporting on this issue. But I want to ask you a couple things. One is, if there are any stories you want to make sure this audience knows about and hears about, any of the people who you know there on the ground any of their stories, and then get into kind of more in general what you think the media is leaving out about Gaza? Well, I tell you that everyone who we speak to in Gaza, we work with about two dozen writers in Gaza, um, and uh, we have friends there, uh, I, uh, people I met when I was in Gaza 10 years ago, and simply staying in contact with people is very difficult. There is no electricity. Israel has cut it off. Israel's cut off the water, first of all, the water. There is no water coming into Gaza, no food coming in. So things like internet and uh, 
communication are vital just for people to be able to communicate with each other as well. And that's cut off too. Many people have only a few minutes of connectivity a day, if at all. And I have to tell you, for a lot of Palestinians from Gaza who are in the United States or around the world, they do not know if their family is dead or alive because they cannot contact them. And I, I have to tell you that the the relief I feel when I will get a text back or a WhatsApp message back from one of our friends or colleagues in Gaza is just, I breathe a sigh of relief, but it doesn't last because everyone in Gaza tells us that they're waiting hour to hour uh, for whether they'll live or die. And um, there's now nobody that we know in Gaza or who is still in contact from Gaza that I know of who hasn't lost multiple and very often dozens of family members. Entire families are being wiped out, uh, whole generation, generation after generation, because Israel is deliberately targeting civilian homes in this, in this massacre, in this revenge campaign. And it reminds me of what we see uh, in Holocaust memorials, in Holocaust museums, where, or, or Holocaust survivor testimonies, where people will say, I'm the only survivor. I lost my whole family. Uh, everyone was killed. My grandparents, my parents, my aunts and uncles. This is what's happening now to people in Gaza. Whole families are being wiped out because Israel is indiscriminately bombing apartment buildings, homes, with no warning, with everyone inside. And this is how we've gotten to the point now where, as of today, the uh, known death toll, the confirmed death toll in Gaza is now 5,700, over 5,700. That includes 700 people killed in the last 24 hours. That's the rate at which Israel is exterminating people. Israel has exterminated 300 Palestinian children in Gaza in the last 24 hours, and more than 2,300 children since October 7. That's an extermination rate of about uh, now getting uh, uh, close to 150 children per day. And uh, there are thought to be, uh, there are more than 800 children missing under the rubble and more than 600, 1,600 people missing under the rubble. So the, the, and the number of injured is close to 20,000 and the hospitals have collapsed. There is no electricity. They've run out of fuel. They have run out of medicine. The medical teams are working around the clock. They are exhausted. Medical teams have been attacked. Ambulances have been attacked. Uh, as of today, according to the health ministry in Gaza, 65 medical workers have been killed in these attacks. Uh, there's nowhere that's safe. There's no one coming to help. And uh, you have 2.3 million people in a concentration camp with the water, I repeat, the water deliberately cut off. The water deliberately cut off. So people are now drinking uh, polluted water or they're drinking salty water. And that is causing um, uh, uh, severe health problems. There are already reports from the uh, from the United Nations on the ground that, that we have a lot of very serious childhood diseases spreading because more than one 
million people are displaced out of 2.3 million people with no shelter, nowhere to go, no safe place. And then when they get there, you have hundreds of thousands of people sheltering in uh, United Nations schools. But there are whole families of dozens of people there with no sanitation, no water, no bathrooms, no way to wash, no way to shower. And the United Nations has actually abandoned uh, most of northern Gaza. Instead of remaining with the people that they serve, the UN uh, uh, Relief and Works Agency took the cowardly and incomprehensible step of abandoning the shelters in northern Gaza. The UN presence is, is vital to deter uh, further Israeli attacks on these shelters. Uh, and we actually have UN workers who have gone on the media, who have gone on Al Jazeera and gone on other Arabic media and said, we demand that the UN uh, leadership come back to the shelters that they come back to the people, but they said, we as workers will remain here and die with the people that we're trying to serve and protect if necessary. It is a catastrophic situation. It is a genocide in a very re the very real uh, meaning of that word. It is a holocaust, and it is being done by Israel purely for revenge, based on uh, largely on a lot of lies about uh, what happened on October 7th. And why do you, do you use the words Holocaust and extermination and genocide? Because that's what's happening. There's no other way to describe it, uh, Katie. As I said, entire families, at this point, hundreds of entire families have been simply exterminated in their homes. And Israel is dropping huge bombs on them, huge bombs, these MK-82 and MK-84 bombs that the United States provides that, that shatter into thousands of pieces of red-hot shrapnel that just tears bodies apart. And this is how Israel has killed, uh, now getting close to 6,000 civilians, 40% of them children in the last uh, uh, two two plus weeks. And to put this in perspective, Katie, we all hear in the media about how terrible Russia is and how cruel what Russia is doing in Ukraine is. According to Ukraine, according to the United Nations, the number of children killed in the armed conflict in Ukraine since February of 22 is around 600 children. So that's 600 children in the whole of Ukraine a vast country compared to Palestine with a population multiple times bigger than the, uh, than the Gaza Strip. And in the Gaza Strip, Israel has killed over 2,000 children in a population of 2.3 million people in the space of two weeks. This is a genocide. And when you cut off water and food to a civilian population, this is, as every authority has said in the past two weeks, a crime against humanity. This is what the Nazis did to people, Katie. They cut off their food and water in the ghettos. They subjected them to, to disease, which is what Israel is doing now, deliberately, knowingly subjecting people to disease. If this is not a genocide, if this is not a Holocaust, then nothing is. And also you have the simultaneous bragging of Israel and their supporters about how surgical their precision is. No, you know, Katie, they're not doing that this time. 
this is an important distinction. In all of Israel's other attacks on Gaza, when they were doing pretty much the same thing, albeit on a, a very slightly smaller scale, I mean, I don't want to minimize the utter horrors and atrocities Israel committed in the past. They used to claim, oh, yes, we're doing it surgically, or we're warning people beforehand. They used to do this thing they call the knock on the roof, where they would fire what they call a warning rocket at the house. And it was definitely not foolproof. A lot of people were killed in that. But they, now they're not saying that. Now they've actually come out and said that our priority is damage, not precision. And they're not even firing the warning rockets that they claim uh, uh, is, 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 is the way that they warn civilians. They're not doing that now. They're just bombing homes with people in them. So you're saying that they're not even doing the normal talking points. They're openly embracing that we're prioritizing like force over precision. Damage over precision was the words of a top Israeli military official. We're prioritizing damage over precision. And that's exactly what they're doing. I have heard people stick with the warning talking points. And I still hear people, I shouldn't be shocked, but I was a little bit shocked that when the hospital was bombed, people were saying, well, Israel wouldn't do that. Yeah, Israel would do that because Israel has killed 65 medical workers. They have attacked and destroyed 25 ambulances. And they have openly threatened these hospitals. They've openly threatened, threatened them. But part of what Israel does, when something like the attack on the Ahli hospital happened, they throw out all these, you know, doubts. They say, oh, well, it wasn't us. It was a fallen rocket. It was this, it was that, exactly as they did when they murdered Shirina Barakla, the Al Jazeera journalist, in May of 2022. Now, let's say for the sake of argument, just for the sake of argument, that Israel wasn't responsible for the massacre at the Al-Ahli hospital uh, a few days ago. Israel is not denying all the other massacres. Israel is, is not saying, oh, we didn't bomb all those houses and kill all those dozens and hundreds of families. They're not saying that. They're saying, we're doing it, we did it. And there have been a few occasions when they have bombed very large high-rise buildings for no other purpose than collective punishment, where they have issued warnings. And that makes it into the media. So people get the impression, oh, they are warning people because they did it when we bombed this big building, or we did, they did it when they bombed this huge uh, complex of apartment buildings in southern Gaza the other day. But most of the time, they are not issuing any kind of warning. They are bombing family homes with the entire family inside. And people have nowhere to go, Katie, because the other talking point the Israelis say is they say, oh, well, you know, we told Palestinians to evacuate the whole north half of Gaza, which is the entirety of Gaza City. That's like, you know... Uh, evacuating a city like Baltimore or evacuating a city like uh, like Chicago, but this is much more populated. There's no fuel for transport. So people, you know, the elderly, the disabled, people who use wheelchairs, pregnant women, uh, people with, with babies, with young children, and no food and no water are supposed to evacuate. How? On foot. While they're being bombed, dozens of miles to where? There's nowhere safe. So Israel said, go south. 
Well, the heaviest bombing in the last few days has been in the areas Israel told people to evacuate to, places like Khan Yunis, like Rafah in the south of Gaza. Israel is bombing the heck out of them. So there is literally no safe place to go and no, no way to get there, and people don't have food and water. I'm talking to people uh, in Gaza or, or messaging them when I can, and people are down to their, to their last uh, reserves of, of whatever they have in the house, and there's no water. Uh, they're rationing, if they have some water, they're rationing it. People are getting a little uh, bit every day, and they're saying, we're giving it to the kids first, and we're giving food to the kids first. So this is a ghetto that they're bombing and starving at the same time. This is a genocide. This is a holocaust in every meaning of that word. What is Israel's goal here? The first goal is pure revenge and spite. This is a colonial power. It has always treated the Palestinian people with hatred and contempt. Remember that Yoav Gallant, the defense minister who gave the order to cut off water and fuel and food and medicine to, this, to the 2.3 million people, half of them children, called the population of Gaza human animals. And we've had other top officials in the last two weeks referring to the population as human beasts. So as many human rights groups have warned, these Israeli policies accompanied by this genocidal language is a real sign that a genocide is taking place. So it's hatred and revenge. And it is, I think, uh, Israel hopes to take advantage of what it has billed as the Israeli 9-11 with, uh, you know, a lot of fake atrocity stories about what happened on October 7th, like the fake story of 40 Jewish beheaded babies and the completely unverified claims of rapes uh, and mass shootings, which uh, Netanyahu claimed that uh, Palestinians were shooting Israelis over mass graves. Absolutely no evidence of any of that has come up. They haven't produced a shred of evidence of that, but they're using these atrocity tales in order to, um, to, uh, to incite the uh, Israeli population and the uh, world public opinion uh, into a genocidal rage, which would allow them to, to possibly expel the Palestinian population in Gaza to Egypt. And at the very least, they want to, to wreak uh, a revenge that is so great that they think the Palestinian people will simply surrender and give up. I wanted to also offer my condolences because I know that one of the people who has been killed is Huda Susi, who did work for Electronic Intifada. And in fact, as you can see here, her pinned tweet is, hi everyone, here is my latest on the Electronic Intifada website for today. Also, she thanks Rifat. Rifat al-Arir, yes. Who's also in Gaza, whose home has been bombed and is now, in, I believe, in a shelter. Yes. So what happened to Huda? Well, what we know about Huda is, uh, and she wrote a really beautiful, moving piece for us in May of 2021 when Israel was bombing Gaza at that time, about how her parents' apartment building was bombed, and she had to go and see them and find them, and she went out to brave the bombs. Her husband said, no, you can't go because it's too dangerous, but she went anyway, 
and she found her parents in their wrecked building and managed to hug her elderly parents, and she survived. And she said, you know, I hugged my parents, but there's going to be no more hugs for Hudal Susi's parents if they survive, because this time she didn't make it. This time she was killed, along with seven members of her husband's family in their home, but uh, her husband and her two young children did survive. And Rifhat al-Arir, I translate one, two, three on uh, on a Twitter, uh, is also another wonderful, he's a, a literature professor, a frequent contributor to the Electronic Intifada, and he has been a mentor to so many young writers in Gaza like Huda and many others whose work we have published and continue to publish at the Electronic Intifada. I don't know if we can put the Electronic Intifada website up just for your viewers to see, but I have to say one of the most amazing and impressive things to me is that we have writers in Gaza like Rifat, whose house was bombed, uh, and he is now um, in a shelter, in a UN school shelter with, with two dozen members of his family, have continued to say, and we tell them, we say, we do not want any of you going out to do reporting. It's too dangerous. You know, if you if you have the wherewithal and are interested in writing a personal story or what you're seeing in your immediate surroundings, that's fine. But we don't encourage our writers at all to go out and uh, face any additional danger or, or, or to do anything. You know, people are just surviving, but they have continued to write and to send us articles via WhatsApp. I'm receiving submissions for the Electronic Intifada via WhatsApp, sometimes in the form of audio messages, because that's the only means of communication people have, if they have any. And so it's just an incredible privilege for us to be able to continue to publish uh, writers like Rifat and like Huda, who, who, who unfortunately will not be able to write again, but she had been pitching articles to us just a couple of weeks ago before this latest escalation. And uh, uh, it's just, as I say, it's incalculable. So much, uh, we can't process it yet. Even people in Gaza say they can't process the scale of the losses. Whole families killed. Every day I'm seeing friends in Gaza saying, my cousin was killed. My uncle was killed. My uh, my uh, brother was killed. My sister was killed. My teacher, my my favorite professor, was killed. My doctor was killed. Uh, just it, it, it's indiscriminate. Uh, it is uh, on a scale we've never seen. It is a genocide, and it, it's it's something that. You know, for me, the world can never be the same again after this, because when I see how many people supported the genocide, and Katie, you know, we're brought up with this, oh, well, what would you do if it ever happened again? Never again. Never again is now, as the saying goes, and lots of people we've discovered are saying, yes, again, 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 do it again, do it to these people, wipe them out, teach them a lesson, show them what we're made of. They're human animals, they're human beasts, they deserve this. They brought it on themselves. All the things that people said in the past to justify genocides and Holocaust, they're saying now about Palestinians and uh, cheering for it in some cases. And uh, so it turns out never again is bullshit, Katie. You have two articles that I just wanted to touch on 
that I think relate to what you're saying, because we've seen a simultaneous kind of caricature, cartoon villain representation of Hamas. And also at the same time, the big lie that everything that Israel does is because they want to protect their citizens and they want Jews to be safe. And you have two stories that I think kind of undermine both of those narratives. So let's start with the story that you and David Sheen did about Israeli forces allegedly shooting their own civilians, according to a kibbutz survivor. Yeah. Yeah, let me give you the big picture here. So the story that Israel told the world and told its people is that uh, on October 7th, Hamas fighters crossed into Israel with one purpose, which was to find and kill as many Jews as possible. And that's when we had the, the fake stories about beheaded Jewish babies, the completely unverified stories of rapes. Not one person has testified to, to, uh, to that actually happening. Uh, and the fake story from Netanyahu of um, Jews being lined up over mass graves and machine gunned into them like uh, the Nazis and their Ukrainian um, accomplices did at Babi Yar in, uh, in Kiev during the, the Second World War. None of that has uh, happened. But they say that 1,300 people were killed, and they say that Hamas killed all those people. Um, Hamas has not denied that Israeli civilians were killed, but what they said is that we never targeted them, we never went with the purpose of killing Israeli civilians. And in fact, we had this uh, testimony from uh, an Israeli woman, Yasmin Parat, that's the story you just showed that I wrote with David Sheen, who gave an interview on Israeli state radio on October 15th, where she gave her account of what happened in Kibbutz Be'eri. She and her uh, partner had escaped from this rave. And again, the stories, the Israeli stories about the rave are also uh, quite questionable, but that's another point. She said, so we escaped from the rave when the rockets started coming over. She never says people were being machine gunned at the rave or anything like that. She says the Hassam rockets were coming over. So we escaped in the car to Kibbutz Be'eri. We found shelter in the home of a couple called Hadas and Adi Dagan. We hid there. I'm summarizing her story, but people can read it and listen to it. She gave this interview on Israel radio, and we have the whole audio with subtitles. People can listen to it themselves. So they found shelter at this house uh, with, uh, with this Israeli couple. Then the Palestinian fighters came. She said it was very frightening. They came. They found us in the safe room in the house. They took us to another house where eight people were being uh, held, and we were there. She said they didn't, they treated us very humanely. They didn't lay a finger on us. They were, you know, they gave us water. They, they were very, she says they treated us humanely. That's her word. And everything was, was calm. And she says they were asking them like, where, where is the Israeli army? Where's the police? Because that's who they wanted to fight. The Hamas fighters were waiting for the Israeli forces to show up because that's who they came to fight. They didn't show up. So she said, the kidnappers told us, this is her you know, speaking, I'm paraphrasing, call the police and tell them that we're here with a bunch of Israeli civilians and they better come. And they actually told her, tell them that, they're, they're, that we have 40 people that we're holding, when there were in fact only 12 Israelis in that particular situation. Anyway, she says, two hours later, the Israeli forces showed up 
and they started a gunfight. They just started shooting indiscriminately and even firing tank shells into the houses. And um, she says in the interview with the Israeli radio uh, host uh, that he says, so is it possible that our forces killed some of these people? She says, yes, undoubtedly. He asks her a second time, and she says, yes, that's what happened. She says that a lot of these people were killed. And people have to understand, Katie, that Israel has something called the Hannibal Doctrine, which, which says that if Israeli forces are seeing someone, one of theirs being abducted, they have the right to use overwhelming force to kill the captors and the person who's being taken, the prisoner, because Israel doesn't want its enemies ever to have living Israelis as um, you know, potential bargaining chips. So they used the Hannibal Doctrine. Now, Yasmin Porat was, was the clearest and one of the first testimonies, but now more and more are coming out, and our friends at Mondo Weiss did a follow-up article where they highlighted some of these other testimonies, which, by the way, are all appearing in Israeli media, media in Hebrew. They are not appearing in um, English-language media, except independent media like the Electronic Intifada and Mondo Weiss, Although now I'm starting to see others picking them up. And Katie, if you can put that tweet you had from me back up on the screen, I just want to show folks one other thing, one other story. I don't know if you can zoom in on that because for me, with my eyesight. Yeah, so this is another uh, testimony that I found at the JTA, the Jewish Telegraphic Agency, which is another incident. But you can see here, they continued to drive. So she, this person, this this survivor, is saying that they were that she was taken with a group of Israelis in the back of a tuk-tuk, a little, you know, open open back, like a little pickup truck. And she says they continued to drive with us in the back toward Gaza when an IDF helicopter appeared above us. At some point, the helicopter shot at the terrorists, the driver, and the others. They were screaming in the tuk-tuk. All the terrorists were dead, and we were alive except for for. Uh, one of the women with us, she had died in the arms of her daughter who had come to the kibbutz. So this is another incident where it was the Israeli army shooting at the uh, Palestinians and at the Israelis who were with them indiscriminately. And more and more examples of that are coming out. So what needs to happen, Katie, is there needs to be, first of all, People need to know Israel lies about everything, and you should not take anything Israel says at face value. Not about beheaded babies, not about uh, uh, rapes, not about uh, uh, people being machine gunned over mass graves. And there should be an independent inquiry, perhaps an international inquiry into exactly what happened on October 7th, because uh, Israel is not telling the truth. But I don't think Israel will allow that because it's trying to push the um, the narrative that Hamas equals ISIS in order to justify or at least distract people's attention from the genocide. And this, Katie, is why Israel, I think, is not interested in having Israeli civilians released from Gaza, even though Hamas has said it wants to release all the civilians and has, in fact, started doing so. Because the civilians who come out just as the civilians who are held in their houses uh, on October 7th and afters are saying, we were treated very humanely. And that's what, what happened with the elderly lady, Yocheved Lifshitz, who was released uh, yesterday night. She came out and said, she 
I mean, there was that famous video of her. I don't know if you want to show it, shaking hands. Yeah, we have two videos, video of, here she is, being released. So this is an elderly Israeli woman who is right now being released to UN workers, right? To the Egyptian Red Cross, because Israel refused to take her. Israel refused to take her. So Hamas released them to the Egyptian Red Cross. It's okay, let's go. It's okay? Let's go. You go with this one? So she says shalom, which means peace. Yeah, and she turned her. You see what happened there? They were taking her away. She paused. She turned around. She said, wait. And she, she takes the hand of the Hamas, the Qassam Brigade's fighter, and says shalom. And I don't know if you have the video. We uh, do, of her explaining what happened. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Here's the video, and you'll hear her. Do- there are subtitles, and then her daughter also translates. Yeah. Um, my mom is saying that they treat them kindly and provided for them. So, yeah, and her press conference was, you know, she said a lot of other things in it. She said that it was a very frightening experience to be taken to Gaza. Um, she was taken on the back of a motorcycle. Now, and, you know, it's not clear who, clearly she ended up in the custody of Hamas and was at that point then looked after well. And she says, she also said in the press conference that, um, they were seen by a doctor uh, regularly. They were given all the medicine they had back home. And, uh, you know, they, they ate the same food as the people who, who were holding them. Uh, but many of the civilians who were taken into Gaza, Hamas has said, and also some of the videos appear to show this, some of the videos that came out on and after October 7th, what, the explanation that Hamas gave its deputy um, had Saleh al-Aruri in an interview on Al Jazeera last week was that we had, I mean, this is him talking, we'd planned a military assault on the Gaza division of the Israeli army. That's the Israeli army division that guards or surrounds Gaza, besieges Gaza. And so, and they did, and they attacked a number of Israeli bases and they released the GoPros of them attacking these bases. But he said that the Gaza division collapsed much more quickly than we expected. And that point when people in Gaza heard the border is open, there was a surge of people, and you saw that in the videos of just ordinary people from Gaza rushing across the fence into the lands that were the, where their parents and grandparents lived before they were ethnically cleansed to Gaza. And he said that a lot of those civilians were brought back in that chaos by other civilians from Gaza. And it took a while to sort everyone out and to find everyone. And Hamas has said that we want to release all the civilians uh, as quickly as possible. What they, they certainly will not release uh, the Israeli military prisoners of war and the foreign fighters, because 
They've uh, apparently captured a number of French, American, and other foreign fighters who came to fight against the Palestinian people as part of the Israeli army. They won't be released unless there is a, uh, a prisoner exchange or unless Israel succeeds in killing them. Well, that's the thing. So you have all these Hollywood celebrities who are using their celebrity power, their star power, to write to Joe Biden to release the hostages, which is so embarrassing. I don't know if they understand how things work. But the irony is that two things. One is obviously they could use their voices if they cared about humans and not just one group of humans. They'd be calling for a ceasefire because they would acknowledge that killing Gazan civilians is inhumane, a war crime, crime against humanity, genocide, as you said, ethnic cleansing. But the other thing is that a lot of these people, I don't expect them to actually have any concern. And this is a very terrible thing. But I think some of these people don't have hearts that can be reached when it comes to Palestinians. But then they should just be furious about Israel not doing everything it can do to free their hostages. But no one's getting that story out. So they can't be up in arms about it. Right. And I think Israel doesn't want the hostages released. The families do. You know, the families are protesting every day, or the the captives. I don't like to use the word hostages because it's incorrect. A hostage is somebody who is held against the ransom, and Hamas is releasing these people. You know, Hamas did not ask anything in return for releasing these captives or these prisoners or these people who are taken amid the chaos, or taken deliberately. But what's clear is that the What's very clear from the testimonies of, that have come out is that what they wanted was to exchange people, whether the military or the civilian, for the thousands and thousands and thousands of Palestinian political prisons, including hundreds of children held in Israel's prisons that Israel absolutely refuses to, to release. And so they were simply trying to use the same means Israel uses if, because Israel does not release Palestinians based on human rights or international humanitarian law. So that's as much as we can say about it. I just think it's so, I mean, all these people really are duped and convinced that Israel will do whatever it takes to save Jewish lives and that Israel is a safe haven for Jews. And meanwhile, they're literally declining the release of... And they definitely killed a large number of people on October 7th. Yeah. Exactly. Exact number. And, and of course, if you read the Mondowice article, October 9th in one kibbutz, the Israeli army shelled a bunch of houses that had um, Palestinians and Israeli civilians in them indiscriminately and killed a lot of people. Uh, but the exact number we will not know without an independent inquiry. Well, Ali, I know you're so busy and you've been so generous with your time. Any final thoughts you want to share with the audience? I just, people need to scream at the top of their lungs, stop the bombing, stop the genocide, turn the water on, turn the medicine back on. No matter what you think Hamas did uh, on October 7th, and much of what people think is skewed by the uh, lies that Israel has been so effectively putting out, no matter what you think, nothing justifies cutting off the water supply to more than one million children caged in a ghetto. Nothing justifies this indiscriminate bombing that is, is murdering hundreds of people a day. Absolutely nothing. It has to stop. 
Someone says, what do I say to my Jewish social media friends and relatives who post Israeli flags with memes that say I support Israel? I have to say with my posts on my timeline, I've been proudly defended. I don't know if you can say anything to them. I think there's people who are beyond reach. Focus your energy on effective solidarity. Find people in your community, in your town, who want to go out to protest, to take action, and uh, and uh, uh, connect with them. Uh, the role of independent media here is crucial. I'm very proud of the Electronic Intifada's work now because we are still working with people in Gaza to get the news out. And I think, uh, I, I, and you know, for me, this is our finest hour when we can support them and um, and help them to reach the world. So listen to people in Gaza, and one way to do that is to read the Electronic Intifada um, and other publications like Mondo Weiss, uh, which uh, I think are um, among the very few that are consistently providing a real picture of what's happening. I can't watch the mainstream U.S. media, Katie, because it it just would destroy my mental health. So, you know, uh, we we hope to provide an alternative for people. One final question I have for you is, Biden ran on being a humanitarian on not being an Islamophobe, on not building a wall, ironically, you know, not embracing the Muslim ban. What do you think of his behavior right now that we're seeing? I mean, Joe Biden is complicit in genocide, and I I believe that in a just world, he would face trial for that. But he wouldn't be the first president who needs to face trial for that. But this is something beyond the pale of what we've even seen. Um, I would say this is the biggest yeah, well, it's hard to compare. They're all involved in major crimes in Iraq, in Syria, in Yemen. Uh, but this is certainly up there with, with crimes on that scale, if not bigger. And Joe Biden would face justice for it in a, uh, in a in any kind of functioning system. Right. And lying about seeing photographs. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Ali Abunima. And thank you so much for all the work that Electronic Intifada does. Thank you, Katie. Thank you so much. See you soon. Bye. Don't go anywhere, guys. We have more show for you. Please like the stream if you haven't liked it. This is a way to beat back the algorithm. As people know, there's a lot of demonization happening. There's a lot of censorship happening. And we're going to talk about that with our next guests. Very excited to be speaking to Noor Jahama, who is Code Pink's Palestine campaigner and has been advocating for Palestinian liberation for over five years. And we're bringing on Athir Yakub, a Brooklyn-based comedian and writer who just released her first comedy album, Denied Entry, with Comedy Records. So, welcome, Noor and Athir. Hello. Hi. How are you? Thank you so much for coming. Wanted to ask you guys, tell us your connections, each of you, what your connection is to Palestine, and just to start off. Athea, you can go ahead. You can go first. Oh, okay. Sure. Yeah. So I um, was a source of my comedy too. I was born in Alabama and I moved to Palestine when I was six months. And I lived there in Ramallah, uh, the West Bank, um, on and off until high school and then moved back to the States. And now I just go back and visit, you know, every year, every couple of years. I still have a lot of family there, mostly in the West Bank. That's the main connection. And where's your family from? They're from a village outside of Ramallah, um, but we, yeah, I, I grew up in Ramallah. And Noor? Yeah, um, my parents were also uh, both born in a village outside of Ramallah in the West Bank called Anya Brood, and that's where I'm from. 
I was born in New York, but I moved to Chicago when I was about six years old. And I mostly grew up in a neighborhood there that's actually called Little Palestine because there's so many Palestinians there. And since, you know, my parents have moved here, I've had the opportunity to visit Palestine uh, a few times, which I'm super grateful for. And I've made a lot of friends in that. So a lot of my friends and family do live there. And so each of you, I'd ask, are you in touch with people still in Palestine? And what are they sharing with you about what's happening on the ground there? So most of the people I know are in the West Bank, um, but I do have a friend in Gaza and I'm honestly not hearing much from him at all. I think just every, I'm lucky if it's once a day, he just kind of lets me know if he's okay and if his family's okay. Uh, oftentimes my messages to him don't even deliver for a day or two. And, um, you know, of course I'm just worried and like thinking, thinking about him and his family all the time. Um, you know, and his neighbors, just everybody in Gaza um, and in the West Bank, things are, you know, not as intense as they are in Gaza, but it is still a huge part of what's happening. The West Bank is under Israeli occupation um, and there's tensions uh, rising in the West Bank, especially with settler, uh, with settlements that are near villages. Uh, there's two settlements near my home village and... Uh, my great aunt and uncle have told me about, you know, at night they can't go out at night anymore because the settlers are being aggressive. Uh, people are being arrested in the streets uh, just for supporting Gaza, just for being Palestinian. So while it's not as intense as in Gaza, there still is, you know, effects in the West Bank. But for the most part, you know, I'm lucky that my family is okay. And what about you, Atir? Um, yes. Yeah, so I, I am in touch, uh, with my family there, cousins. Um, one of them actually works for Mondo Weiss and is a, is a correspondent there. Oh, nice. So shout out Mariam Baruti. Follow her also for news on the ground. Oh, that's your cousin? Yeah. Oh, wow. And yeah, I mean, I talked to my aunt, the thing, I talked to my sister in law whose family, um, is there and she said, uh, a family, uh, in the West Bank near her village got killed. The Israeli just shot at them while they were just crossing over. Um, I was there last summer and there was uh, a new, there, a checkpoint that had been built around my village um, and then they shut it down and they um, uh, closed us off. And so we weren't able to, my parents have a house there. We weren't able to get through. We had to kind of go around through a different village because Israelis just decided to close it off and punish us, as they said. Um, and there's always tensions. And this is, a you know, people keep saying, like, of course, like the Hamas argument, the Gaza thing. But even if you remove that every single day, there are still kids and innocent civilians being killed in the West Bank. Um, they're still being detained. Still, um, the you, you know, the occupation has not stopped. Um, and uh, it's not under Hamas rule. So that argument has just completely, I, it's just so frustrating having to, um, take away from the fact that there is still an occupation. This has been going on. We have been under siege, even in the West Bank. Um, and, uh, just because you see it more intensely in Gaza and especially in this time, um, people not realizing that we see this every day on the news and we're, we're our news sources that actually, um, tell us what's going on. So at least everybody else is starting to talk about it, but it's just um, unfortunate the 
the media that they're consuming and how biased it is. So it feels like a double-edged sword on one hand. Okay, people are finally talking about it and asking questions. And then you see like the mainstream news and it's just absolutely abhorrent and disgusting. And the constant, I mean, we've been saying this on Twitter, the constant, will you condemn Hamas? Like whenever there's a Palestinian guest on, and no one says that to people who are defending Israel, or no one says that to like a Jewish you know, if you're if you're Muslim American, whether or not you're practicing, you may not be Palestinian, you could be Egyptian, American, whatever, you're asked that. And, you know, I'm not if I go on well, I don't I got fired because of my video about Israel being apartheid, but I'm sure if I went on some channel, they wouldn't ask me if I condemn what Israel is doing. Right. Unless I brought it up, because I do condemn what they're doing, obviously. But you know what I mean. And so what kind of, so you do organizing around this, Noor. I want to ask you about what that's been like and what the challenges have been. And then, Athir, I want to ask you what performing has been like. I guess for me, the biggest barrier that's been getting in the way is just the barrage of misinformation that I feel is distracting from, like, the truth that we want to tell. I think that a lot of time I'm having to spend debunking things, uh, guiding people, you know, of course, like, I don't mind guiding people to the right resources, but it's just the dominant narrative in Western media is completely false. It's this, um, you know, conflation of like a war that's happening between Gaza and Israel or Hamas and Israel. People aren't seeing the big picture. And I think that's um, the thing that's been toughest to get through to people, although I have seen a lot of people um, speaking out or just familiarizing themselves with what's been going on in Palestine for the last 75 years, um, and they're just getting to know it for the first time. So I think that, you know, something that's not really new, but in Palestinian uh, organizing for Palestine, you kind of constantly have to start from scratch whenever you're faced with like a new person or uh, you want to do like a campaign about, uh, you want to tell people about like what's happening in Gaza or you want to do a campaign about anything related to Palestine. You kind of always have to start from the beginning. Okay, well, let me give you a Palestine 101, uh, what happened in 1948. You know, even before that, people need context, um, you know, British occupation on Palestine. Uh, so it's kind of like, we always have to start from there and then keep going. What is like, a, just, I mean, not, you don't have time for a whole spiel, obviously, but like, what is something that you feel like that people need to know about that they don't know about? Just like one piece of information. I think that people need to know that this is not a war. This is not a religious, complicated conflict. People need to see that this is a snapshot, a very, very intense snapshot of 75 years of occupation in Palestine. And this is genocide. This is an inevitable event, um, an inevitable intensi intensification of genocide. Um, and this is the regular actions of a settler colonial state. And people are witnessing uh, what happens when oppressed people are, you know, pushed against a wall. And this is, um, you know, the ultimate goal of Zionism in the first place. This genocide is representative of the settler colonial state of Israel. I mean, I feel like it even took me, and I'm pretty critical, but it took even me a while to really face the fact that, because like the idea of, oh, Jews deserve a place to be safe, like that in itself, you know, I lost family in the Holocaust. So growing up, I wasn't raised in a Zionist home, but I definitely grew up with the idea of don't Jews have the right to be safe? Of course, Jews have the right to be safe. Every person and people have the right to be safe. 
but you don't have the right to ethnically cleanse people in order to be safe. And of course, they didn't wind up making themselves safe because there's a lot of violence there, obviously. But for me, I remember kind of, I just had to face the fact that the people who founded Israel, they were honest either with publicly or like in letters and behind the scenes, very honest about what they were doing. They weren't like, we're going to live with the Arabs who are there and we're going to make like a multicultural interfaith collective commune where people can be safe. It was very much, we want to become the majority and we're pushing other people out. And I feel like, yeah, that's old history and it was in 1948, but you can't really understand what's happening today unless you get that framework. Ethier, what has it been like for you performing? I mean, how much can you even talk about this stuff? Well, I'm talking about it. I'm like, uh, I, I don't know. I have nothing to lose at this point. I don't care. I, I can't, when people's lives are at stake, I'm not going to be censored uh, more than social media is already censoring me. Um, the stage, why I do comedy, it was supposed to be a space to be liberated, to use my voice, to express myself fully. And if I can't do that, then I don't want to do it. I don't want to do comedy. It's a luxury for me. It's something that I can't be complicit. I can't just shut my mouth and be in an industry that's complicit to genocide if I can't talk about it. I know this one booker has been harassing people, Jewish people and Palestinians and Arabs who are um, speaking out against Israeli violence. Um, uh, I'm sure there's places that won't want to work with me. That's happened in the past, like for not being Palestinian. So I try to lay my cards out on the table. Like this is who I am. And honestly, I don't want to work with someone who is complicit in genocide anyway. Um, I, been trying to be selective about the type of shows that I'm doing too. Um, uh, you know, just doing a lot of kind of like POC shows and like um, Palestine fundraiser here and there and like stuff like that, because um, I'm also not feeling the funniest space, but, um, but also this is an outlet, you know, I made a call 1-800 Hamas sketch to get you a kind of a carte blanche to do whatever the hell you want um, sketch, which has, been received well and gotten a lot of hate, but that's, you know, you're going to piss off somebody. Is that the blame Hamas, save your ass, that one? Yeah. <laughs> Let's watch that one. Tired of getting blamed for things that you've done? Want to remain the victim while still inflicting harm? What you need is Black Hamas insurance. Lied on your taxes? Black Hamas. Cheated on your spouse? Black Hamas. Committing genocide? Call 1-800-BAHAMAS today and get 100% off the book. That's 1-800-BAHAMAS. Offer valid in the United States, Israel, Britain, and anywhere colonialism is accepted. That's a good use of it. I was just so angry. I was like, I don't know what to do, but without, you know, you know, you have to use satire and be funny. And even though I'm like grinning through it, I'm like, I'm so angry, but you know, what are you going to do? It's also really frustrating that Palestinians don't have the space to be angry, you know, and a lot of, because then it's like, oh, there goes the violent one. What are you going to do? It's like, yeah, I have the right to not only be angry, but I think people are not processing. Like Ali was saying, nobody's processing right now. It's impossible. It's like a grief every second, every minute. How can you, a new one. And it's impossible for your brain to even wrap its head around it and it shouldn't have to. So it's been just, um, really tough, but I know I'm going out using my voice. I'm doing podcasts like this to support and amplify Palestinian voices. Um, as much as social media uh, sickens me, I'm, uh, 
I'm still out there. I'm trying to share things because it's still trying to suppress us. Um, definitely the censorship has been overwhelming with Instagram and all of these places. So, um, but we, all we have is our voices and we, you know, we, I, I can't look away and, you know, I've lived through a bombing in Ramallah. I've survived in 2000. So I, and on a, and I've lived through after that, it was one of the first bombings that happened in the West bank. And then it was every night for a year. Um, then my family moved back, but every, every night I remember going to bed next to my mom on the floor away from the windows and thinking, yeah, I might not wake up the next day. Not that casual about it, but just like, it's just, you accept it as a fact of life. And for me, like watching these videos have been, has uh, been so like, even on a personal level, so re-traumatizing. Um, I can't even imagine even a fraction of what they're going through. So it's, I feel it in my bones. I feel it takes me right back and it, it I, I can't even, I would not wish this. No one, no one should have to know this kind of terror. I don't think people, when they hear I don't think people understand what terror is, what actual terror that like, like radiates through every fiber of your being where like, I don't think most people understand that and overuse that word and don't understand like it's, it it takes over you and it's it's something you you don't recover from. I'm lucky I have, I live in New York. I have a therapist, but like these kids will like, so I can't even imagine the amount the amount of trauma that even people who survive are going to go through. Yeah, we were we on my other show that I do. We spoke to Rafat Alarir, who Ali was mentioning earlier, who's in Gaza, whose house was bombed and is now in a shelter. And he was saying how, and actually Mohammed Shahada, who was on too, was saying how high the rates of PTSD are there. Rafat was saying how you know he has a seven year old daughter, but they say she's like three wars old. And how the kids are kind of like checked out. I can't even begin to imagine it because it's just, it's just so horrible. And I get so angry. I'm so angry and frustrated with all these people who are saying like no hostage left behind. That's that hashtag that like Amy Schumer and all these people are signing up to. It's like, do they not care at all? I'm not saying I don't have empathy for those people who are being held, but like, while you're talking about that, to not even make the link to what's happening to these Palestinian civilians, it's just like unbelievable to me how baked in the dehumanization is that they could just ignore that entire population. I'm like hoping that the fact that Israel, as Ali was talking about, like I'm hoping that the fact that Israel is not doing everything it can to save the captives, the prisoners, well, maybe wake people up and like cause them to have kind of like a paradigm shift and realize like not everything that they've been taught is true. And if they see that, like the fact that Hamas was willing to release prisoners and Israel like dismiss that as mendacious propaganda, I'm really hoping that that could maybe lead people just change the way they see the world and be like, oh, I guess, you know what, like not all Palestinians are. I don't even know if they think that they're all out, like want to kill Jews or if they just don't think about them. I don't know what their psychology is. I just feel so like we need to be calling for a ceasefire. And there are people out there who won't call for a ceasefire for Palestinians. But maybe they'll realize that if they're just bombing indiscriminately, that'll also kill the people that they care about protecting, which, again, is a totally morally reprehensible position. I'm just like, maybe that'll be the thing that'll get people to say, stop killing kids. Not the kids, sadly. 
Hmm. I don't know. But I, I saw this thing that like broke my heart. I don't know the person who posted it. I'm now following him. He's with the Palestine Children's Relief Fund. He posted this thing of this boy who like, hold on, let me see if this stays. This is Mujahid. Mujahid. He was seven years old. We treated him in our cancer department. This was his last drawing. Sorry. I think this is the first time I've cried in air. Sorry. I've been crying on every podcast. Yeah. I've been crying on every... It's... A message of thanks for the chemo he received. While living in the blockaded Gaza Strip. Last night a bomb was dropped on his home, killing him and his entire extended family. Sorry. Sorry. Um... It's extremely, extremely tragic. I mean, I think like every, every day I'm, there's a moment where I have to like cry just to process, just to think about all these things. But he's not the only one who was murdered with his entire family. Like the statistics from this morning is over 600 families have been completely eliminated, completely wiped out. And I think that Men like talking about them, telling their stories. That was their only ask. It was it was only to, you know, make sure people know that. Make sure people know I existed. Make sure you know you tell them about how I loved my family. How you know I lived in this neighborhood, and you know this is we had breakfast together. Things like that. So yeah, they weren't out there saying kill Jews, kill. They were just like please, like this propaganda that's been fed it's so deep embedded like you're saying it's so deep that i don't even know if this doesn't wake people up i don't know what will i don't know the the cognitive dissonance is real i mean i don't the people who have experienced such horrendous loss and genocide themselves to not be able to have that same empathy towards another human makes me feel disgraced as a human being and i just it makes me lose all hope i don't want to lose hope i and we have to keep you know fighting and there are so many good humans and people that do wake up and some people i know people like follow like breaking the silence and other places where like army uh, you know ex-soldiers come out and speak about the trash atrocities that they um witnessed and probably have committed and i've you know because it's uh it's a collective trauma that we all need to free ourselves from yeah it has been nice seeing that there have been Jewish organizations, like, if not now, and Jewish Voice for Peace. That's just so, like, that's the takeaway. How can you be never again just for Jews? Like you were saying, to go through that trauma, how can you possibly then turn around, create this other nation, and then ethnically cleanse other people? I just don't get it. This isn't complicated. It's kids. I mean, it's civilians, it's kids. It's not complicated. They're not getting water. Mm-hmm. Well, the narrative I've been reading, because um, I'm trying to understand that psyche as well, it's like, well, Hamas is holding out on them. Hamas has all the fuel. Hamas is stealing all the Okay. Again, even if you remove that, it's, e- it's so easy to just demonize a whole group population. But what about the West Bank for the last 75 years? What about... They control a lot of the resources. Like my parents can't 
add anything, build anything to your house. They have to get permission to do anything to their house. They have to get permission if they want to sell. They have to permit for the water lines for everything. That's not, I'm not talking about in Gaza. You know, if Gaza was a maximum security prison, like the West Bank is still a prison. It's just slightly more open prison. Right. Slightly better conditions. Better conditions, but you can't travel as freely. There's still checkpoints, settlements everywhere. A soldier can shoot you with complete impunity. Doesn't matter. And have. Like, we all watched it. They, you know, the first denied, we were talking about Shireen, they denied it. An American citizen who is Christian because they like to also demonize Muslims on top of that. And nothing's happened. Right. Even being Palestinian-American, she still couldn't get justice. They still couldn't condemn it. They lied like the West, you know, America couldn't condemn it. They wouldn't meet with her family. Yeah. I will say when I visited um, Palestine this recently in August, I went to Janine after, uh, if you guys remember in July, there was a huge attack on Janine. And you can see Shirina Abu memorial was actually full of bullet holes. And the street, that same street where she was murdered was completely destroyed. So you can see like even, even in death, Palestinians are, you know, facing, facing violence. Like we, there's people attack that. Well, you saw her funeral too. They were attacking the coffin and yeah, so that's not surprising. And they bomb cemeteries. They steal bodies. My cousin got killed also at the hands of soldiers and settlers several years ago. And they tried to steal the body. My older aunt tried to throw her, literally throw herself on the body and be like, you're not taking this. Um, and they would go try to hide it in a different hospital because they literally steal bodies because they know then you can't, you know, even in death, you can't have peace. And it's like, what kind of sick, sick, like, uh, I, I don't know. It, ma- it makes me feel like the the worst monstrosities that human beings can, can have are being, are lying before us. And then everyone else is still on board somehow. I mean, for their own self-interest, but even, and then I think the people who are complicit um, are, you know, whatever the celebrities you name are like also not critical thinkers and people don't want to ask the questions because it's scary. The truth can be scary, but you know, not, not knowing is also um, because that's like your own, like it's like what you've been told your, your truth. And so when that's shattered, I think it fucks with people's identity and that's scary to them. I agree. Yeah, it does. It's like everything they know and they have to like reconsider it. And then what do they have to realize that they've been like, it's like better to be in denial because then you don't have to grapple with what you've been doing. That's true. What you've been silent about, complicit. To. You've been silent about what you've been promoting. Like if you actually look at what they're doing. I was going to ask you guys what kind of pushback you've experienced, like the censorship or getting docs, because I know that happened to you, Nor. Yeah, I think just like generally, like just talking about doxing, I was a student organizer most of my time being an organizer. Um, I organized with the SJP, Students for Justice in Palestine, on my campus. And um, I was a pretty, like, visible member. Um, And, yeah, not only did we have, like, pushback from our university just all the time, you know, making things difficult, but there was Zionists at our school that would target us, that would spread lies about us online, that would go to our dean um, and tell them that we threatened them physically, that they didn't feel safe around us. Um, you know, we actually at one point wanted to bring Norman Finkelstein uh, to speak. He was fired from my university. So, 
we wanted to bring him to speak and they told us that we had to have the event off campus and listen listen to how racist it is. this is off campus we had to hire our own security and pay for it and there had to be security present and nobody could bring backpacks i i think they really just threw that last part in just to like just to make it like if we didn't understand that it was racist before they just you know so that's just pushback just from this was just activism for palestine before before all this happened there was this one wave there was this this one zionist on campus who really didn't like us and she's just a professional doxer she doxed like the entire sjp this was the first time i got doxed and they had posted like screenshots that they had been stalking of my social media profiles of things that i've said from like years before, like three years before they had ever posted anything on me, things that were deleted. So um, you can imagine how intrusive that feels to just have somebody like, they were just screenshotting you the whole time. Right, very creepy. And that I could live with. I knew that that would happen if I was organizing for Palestine, which is fine. This is my, this is the only thing that matters to me. So whatever comes out of that, I'll welcome it. But um, there was one instance where I was posted on this one Instagram page and I was accused of being anti-Semitic, of course. Um, And they were um, tagging my university and my university had actually responded in the comments. Sorry. And like I was getting death threats, by the way. It wasn't just like this, whatever. It was death threats. It was Islamophobia um, because I wore hijab at the time. So people had a lot of ammo, I guess, against me. Um, But my university saw all these comments, did not speak to me, um, and publicly posted in in the comment section, yeah, what we're going to investigate the anti-Semitic comments by our students. So, you know, you know, just validating everything they said. Um, And yeah, I ended up having a meeting with the dean Luckily, I know my rights and Palestinians offer a lot of support, legal support. Pali Legal helped me out and I was fine. But it wasn't the first time, you know, they tried to shut down SJP or members of SJP, but I don't know when they'll learn that they can never, never shut us down. Um, Yeah, so that that was just that's just generally now um, more so we will get like hate at Code Pink. We'll get like lots of emails you know, it's not even necessarily about straight up Zionists, but it's about people who don't think that they're Zionists and they believe a lot of the misinformation that's been spreading. And that's why it's so dangerous. These people are even people who have supported Palestine for the last however many years or they think they did. Um, and then, you know, when they witness some sort of resistance, they turned on the cause they turned on, you know, a lot of us, they'll just send like unnecessary hate. Like this time, you mean October 7th? Yeah, ever since then. Um, and my Instagram account has been restricted. I stopped counting after like the fifth time. Logged out, um, restricted for unusual activity. I've been posting a lot on my Instagram stories since October 7th. I was um, stopped from reposting things on my story for a period of time and... Yeah, that's just, my Instagram just keeps getting restricted. It actually happened to me twice just today. So that's kind of what it's been. A lot of censorship and then just generally a fear for my safety when at like any actions. Um, there was an action in Skokie in uh, Illinois two days ago, and it was a protest for a pro-Israel rally. 
and we were protesting. And one of the attendees of the pro-Israel rally actually pulled out a gun on a group, a group of us who were mostly kids, very obviously kids. And he fired once and nobody got hurt, thankfully. Uh, he also hit somebody with his car and chased a girl around and he was arrested, thankfully. Um, we also got maced by some random guy too. So this is just the reality. And when was this? This was two days ago. Did it get any coverage? It got very vague coverage. They like to say shots fired outside uh, Israel solidarity rally with uh, Palestinian counter-protesters. Shots fired is very passive language, obviously. They didn't say who shot them at who. Um, obviously trying to make it seem like we were the aggressors as always. Um, but it was really a bunch of kids. And Oh, I see this now. One taken into custody after firing shots outside Israel pro- Palestinian rallies in northern suburbs. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I heard about this, but yeah, it was like, unless you investigate, so you you don't know. And you were there, Nor? Yeah, I was there. Thankfully, I was okay. And like my friends and my sister were with me. Wow. Yeah. Did you see the person? Yeah, um, I did see him. He was wearing a shirt with a tank on it. Yeah, lovely. But yeah, he was arrested like immediately, but... I mean, immediately after he ran somebody over, chased somebody around and shot his gun. Wow. If you can believe that. That's so scary. Um, anything that you want to make sure that we talk about that Code Pink is doing? I have that Instagram page that you sent me. You want to set that up? Yeah. So this, well, I did, I sent you a couple of things. One of them is just a video that we put together showing the parallels between the rhetoric during 9-11 and the rhetoric. I got that one. You want me to show that? Yeah, that one is very important. If people want to show. Presidents lie, people die. Our fellow citizens, the Iraqi regime has plotted to develop anthrax and nerve gas and nuclear weapons, arming to threaten the peace of the world by seeking weapons of mass destruction. But we did not find those weapons. I never really thought that I would see have confirmed pictures of terrorists beheading children. These regimes pose a grave and growing danger. They could provide these arms to terrorists, giving them the means to match their hatred. They could attack our allies or attempt to blackmail the United States. The price of indifference would be catastrophic. We will work closely with our coalition to deny terrorists and their state sponsors the materials, technology, and expertise to make and deliver weapons of mass destruction. To ensure our nation's security. Making sure Israel and Ukraine succeed is vital for America's national security. Yet time is not on our side. We're facing an inflection point in history. For the United States of America, for God's sake. The most powerful nation in the history, not in the world, in the history of the world. The history of the world. Freedom, independence, self-determination. America is a beacon to the world. Still, still, the indispensable nation. Tonight, there are innocent people all over the world who hope because of us, who believe in a better life because of us, who are desperate not to be forgotten by us. Are waiting for us. 
terrorist group Hamas unleashed pure, unadulterated evil in the world. That's great. It's really effective. And I, I can't believe it. It hasn't been made into a bigger deal. The fact that Biden, I guess because he lies all the time, but you'd think it would be a bigger deal that he said he saw these photos. I think that we don't expect much from like our presidents anymore. Um, also, I don't think many people like know the truth. I think a lot of people still believe uh, what he said anyway, because the damage was done when he said it in the first place. And he knew that that would happen. Like that poor six-year-old kid who was stabbed to death. Yeah. You were there, weren't you, at his his funeral? I didn't go to the prayer, but yeah, I just saw the family like after. Um, I mean, there was only one person there. Like His mother couldn't even be there because she was in the hospital. What was that like? It was incredibly sad. Uh, there was a lot of people, which, you know, the one silver lining I can, you know, pick up is that people are coming together like Palestinians. We're willing to like hold each other in community and grieve with each other. But even that kind of makes me feel guilty sometimes, which I don't, I feel bad, honestly, that we can all sit and not worry about like bombs dropping on us and like we can sit and like comfort each other even though I know it's necessary I know that we should be doing that but it was still very sad it was just it's just sad to think that that would happen to just a kid just for being Palestinian being Muslim um I have younger sisters too that live um you know in like a very heavily like populated Arab Muslim area so just makes me like worry, honestly. But yeah. Yeah. Anything else that you guys want to share about what you're working on or what you want people to know about Code Pink or SC or your comedy or your activism or any anything? Yeah, just follow me for, you know, the shows. I'll be reposting some stuff. We'll be doing a show called Muslim Girls DTF as part of New York Comedy Festival. Not political, but we'll probably get there. Which is, what is it, a debate their faith? Uh, discuss their faith, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that's going to be November 4th, uh, City Winery Loft. Oh, nice. If anyone wants to come out and support and, you know, just support your, you know, fellow Palestinians and prop up our voices, repost our stuff because it's not getting shared or abused because of censorship and restrictions online, unfortunately. Yeah, have you, you've experienced that? Oh yeah, I've had post. I had that three lies that Israel tell got exposed. Uh, I'm mean, sorry, taken down. Um, I think I know who who did it. Uh, it's this. I think this person who's been after all these comedians, like who've been um, speaking out. Um, but literally, the posts were from the Israeli papers saying and reporters saying that it wasn't confirmed. So it wasn't like it was this propaganda. Where that's so anyway. It's absolutely insane. Um, but yeah, just uh, and read these other um, outlets too, like Mondawai's Electronic Intifada. I think it really helps to get a um, a better, more balanced perspective. So this is a booker you're saying who's harassing people. Like, what is the booker doing? Just like messaging people nasty stuff. I'm sure also like people aren't going to get you know booked on shows. Like, who cares? But what I mean, it sucks. But also. Just uh, reposting my stuff, but not actually, um, and writing nasty things on it, and then attacking people in the comments, harassing comedians. Like, is that it's a lot of like Jewish comedians and 
I mean, they're not as, you know, who have been speaking out against it. So it's not just us or like Arabs or Palestinians, um, just anybody. Um, but you have to really ask yourself, what are you hiding? Like, why do you, if, if we're like all about just trying to expose the truth and the same thing happened in any movement, even in the Me Too movement, women were getting, um, you know, um, uh, harassed and, and penalized and all these horrible things were happening to them for speaking out. And then eventually something bubbles up to the surface and blows over, you know, maybe that's not the best choice of words, but, <laughs> but um, eventually the truth will come out. It's true. It's like, you know, that they're like in trouble when they have to illegalize things, right? Like you can't have a Palestinian flag. You can't have a march or you have to be like told, you're an anti-Semite. Like why this is because they don't have the, they know that they're losing like the public hearts and minds. And and there's that poll that came out last week, I think a CBS poll, I believe it's like for the first time, a majority of Americans were saying, don't send weapons and supplies to Israel and do send aid to Gaza. I don't know if you saw that, but that was kind of like a watershed moment. Wow. Yeah. Anything else that nor that Code Pink is working on or that you want to make sure the audience is? Um, well, if you guys aren't going to a theater's event uh, on November 4th and you're closer to D.C., we're gonna we're having this national march um, in D.C. Uh, there's a link in the description, I think, where you can RSVP. Um, if you want to, like, be part of Code Pink's contingent, like, definitely uh, let us know that you're going to be there in person. We can give you, like, some Code Pink, like, merch so you can yeah honestly go to that go to that don't go to my i would go to dc if i could skip my show but if they're coming all the way from new york i'm not sure i don't know how many people will but if you do that's super cool and let me know if while uh, you're coming i think also in the description is our petition calling for a ceasefire uh calling for the u.s to pressure uh israel to ceasefire and yeah we also have the, that one video that you just yeah let me let me play that so this is someone who's on hunger strike. Leslie, what day of your hunger strike for Gaza are you on? I'm on my eighth day, and I'm, uh, I'm here in Congress to ask them to sign them to a, a ceasefire. That's the first thing we need to, is have a ceasefire. Even um, President, former President Obama is asking, saying that the consequences of, the, of what Israel is doing have generational effects. You need the killing to stop. Over 700 people were killed in the last 24 hours in Gaza. That toll is now 5,700 people, 2,000 are children. Why is Congress waiting to sign a ceasefire? That's the least they could do. Sign a ceasefire. Write your own ceasefire. Do something for the people of Gaza. It's dire. They're dying. They're being slaughtered. It's a genocide. It's ethnic cleansing. Call it what it is. Leslie, <laughs> what day of your hunger strike? You know, you'd think that that would be getting some attention. Wow. Right. And I feel like a hunger strike, too, like against Congress or like for like this cause is like something I think like super. I really would think it would be getting more attention, especially just considering just the risk that she's willing to take. Um, but if you guys can't come on November 4th, just do everything you can, even if it's not Code Pink related, even if it's not any organization related, do 
everything you can with every fiber in your being, especially if you live in the United States, to combat what's happening in Palestine as much as you can. Because if you live in the United States, in all honesty, you have uh, a responsibility to, because our country arms what's happening in Palestine. Our country is sponsoring the genocide in Gaza right now. People are reporting that they see the, the serial numbers of bombs and they see that they were made by American companies. So even if it's posting on your Instagram story, I know people feel that that's performative, but it's not. We need to combat the mass uh, misinformation that's happening in Western media right now. Join a protest near you. There's Students, Justice, Students for Justice in Palestine. There's Palestinian Youth Movement. There's American Muslims for Palestine. There's, I'm sure, other local organizations near you. Get to know them. Look for them. They're making themselves uh, very visible right now. So find them. Call your congressperson. Ask them um, to support the ceasefire. Just everything you can, uh, you should and, yeah, you should be doing. Okay. Now we're going to end on Phantom Asfanta sent me this video in Arabic. I don't know what's being said, but I think it goes, you'll see what happens. So I hear Yala, so they're saying, let's go, come. They're like encouraging him, like, come on, champ, kind of like, you can do it. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like I see that in a lot of videos too. It's really like, it's kind of heartbreaking and heartwarming at the same time to muster up whatever they can to just like encourage people or just lift kids' spirits, especially. Um, yeah. If I get into that too much, we're going to all cry again. Well, Thank you guys so much. And thank you, everyone who just tuned in. Thank you, Noor. Thank you, Athir. Thank you, Ali. Thank you. Thank you. And definitely come back on. There's a lot more to talk about. And I want to hear more of your guys' stories, too. Thank you so much. Bye. Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Helper. Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordoba. See you next time.